Is Ohio really a month behind Florida and Arizona, like Mike DeWine said? We're going to get to that on this episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues Jen Cahoon and Chris Warnowski. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. Hey there. Let's get right to it. Is the coronavirus spread in Ohio coming anywhere near approaching the out-of-control spread in Florida, Texas, and Arizona? Jane Cahoon, we decided to look at this after Mike DeWine said last week that we were a month behind Florida and Arizona and could become them if we don't control what we're doing. Our data guru, Rich Exner, was off last week when DeWine said that, so I was very frustrated that we couldn't immediately check it out. But he got back yesterday and immediately turned it around. We published the story today. What does it say? Well, it, it says that while we have had a spike, we just don't compare to those other states. What, what Rich did was he, he took the Ohio data that he's archived, and then he compared that to the data from Texas, Arizona, and Florida, but he adjusted it for population to show, you know, how many cases per 11.7 million people, which is Ohio's population, you know, to get like an apples to apples. And it showed that, you know, all four states were roughly at the same place for, for new cases per capita two months ago. And and all four states have have had increasing case numbers. But the new case rate in Texas is now like three times higher than Ohio. It's three and a half times higher for Arizona over Ohio and four and a half times higher for Florida over Ohio. Right. And what what I liked about what he did is he put it into a nice time comparison. So so we're not a month behind them. We're not like them at all. Uh, not Not to say that that things couldn't get worse and we could go down that road. But he also says in his story that even though we kind of like, I don't think he said tripled, but it's we've basically tripled our number of daily cases. We've plateaued it, it, that, that, yeah, we had that leap. We jumped up and we've been kind of even for a while. Whereas in those other states, right. it's just, the curve is just going straight up. Right. So it's a very good news story. And I'm, I'm very happy that Rich Exner was able to put this all into perspective because people have all been very worried about the coronavirus and we should worry about the coronavirus. It can kill us and do bad things, but, but we are not right now headed down a certain path to the Armageddon they're seeing in those States <laughs> with the hospitals that are filled up and, right. and that kind of thing. I'm so, sure governor Mike DeWine though would say, you know, it's not time to, to relax here. You know, it's more important than ever that we keep, keep wearing the masks, keep social distancing, you know, because we still do have a, a lot of cases. But as Rich pointed out, it's it's been like 14 days since we reached that 1,000 cases a day point for a rolling average. Um, but, you know, well, we did hit the record, what, Friday, right? I mean, it, it, I mean we, right, it's not right. that we had another yeah. record of 1,679 cases on Friday. And our rolling average has topped out at uh, 1,373. But but as you said, we it looks like there, there are signs that we're we're at sort of a plateau. Now that's that's now you know the the coming days are go- going to tell us the story. I do wonder why it is why Florida, Arizona, and Texas are exploding with cases and we're not. I wonder whether the most Ohioans 
are actually wearing their masks and not going to gatherings and and things that you see in those other states. Uh, I don't know how we get at that, but but as as with many of Rich's stories, he lays out a bunch of answers, and then we have a whole bunch more questions. So uh, we'll be firing off ideas at other reporters. Hey, how come Ohio is not going off the charts? But it's a um, it's a good news story. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How much is the bill for the damages that downtown businesses suffered in the May 30th riot in both physical damage and lost sales? This is a number that's been a little bit elusive until this week, Chris Murnowski. Uh, and and I'm still not quite sure I believe it. So where do we get this number and what's it based on? So uh, downtown Cleveland Alliance president and CEO Joe Marinucci uh, said uh, during the Cuyahoga County uh, meeting on Monday that downtown businesses and property owners lost uh, a combined estimated $6.3 million in the, in the May night or the May 30th demonstrations. And this is really the first time anybody's put a number on anything. Um, and, and the way that he broke it down was that the figure includes an estimated $3.38 million in physical property damage and just under $3 million in lost business as a result of the of the demonstration, the, the, the looting and rioting, plus the, I guess, I guess that would include the lockdown that, that ensued the next couple of days that basically meant nobody could go downtown. The lost sales. The lost sales and everything like that. So I got a note right after this story broke saying from somebody in the newsroom, it said, could it really be true that 102 businesses were damaged downtown in that, in that core uh, but Marinucci says he's going to provide the list of all the businesses and what they suffered, right? Well, and that, again, that doesn't necessarily mean that they all suffered damage. It means they may have lost some sales due to the fact that they couldn't open up or or whatever. But it's uh, worth noting that this is still less money than the Hilton got from the county. <laughs> <laughs> More than a million dollars less than one hotel company got. Actually, How did it break down? Was it mostly restaurants? Was it offices? What was so that? the applicants included 15 property owners and 88 business owners. And the top three types of businesses that applied were restaurants, retailers, and fitness businesses. So uh, I know there's cycling gyms and stuff like that downtown. So uh, that would probably those. But, um, but yeah. But they're, they're all applying for money from this fund that the county and, and Marinucci's agency has put together that that'll cover stuff that's not covered by the insurance of the businesses. That's why this is becoming a public matter. Right. So they apply for the some, something from the downtown Cleveland Alliance Fund that will pay for about one point four million dollars in riot related costs that aren't covered by the insurance and a the total of uninsured losses sought by the businesses and property owners was about two 2.07 million dollars so the bulk of this was covered by insurance but the rest of it will come out of this fund that the downtown cleveland alliance created i would love to see the receipts that justify this because it, it sounds a little bit high to me but but who knows i i just i i hope that there's at least a little bit of rigor in the accounting for what what this involves. I mean, you know, I could see where the grocery store can show its daily sales and what it didn't have for the few days it was shut down. But I, I'm just, 
I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical of the amount. So we'll have to see how much rigor the, the county brings to this when it's time to pay out. So you're was, hoping there's transparency uh, in yeah, government? Right. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. You. Right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is John Kasich, a Republican, a key speaker at the Democratic National Convention in support of Joe Biden? Jane Cahoon, a whole bunch of Democrats are not exactly keen on this. <laughs> they don't really like John Kasich. What's going on with this? Well, you know, we shouldn't be surprised, I guess, that, that Kasich has been approached about, about speaking at this convention. He, he's a really visible Republican critic of, of Donald Trump. And the senior strategist for Kasich's um, 2016 presidential campaign, a guy named John Weaver, is co-founder of the Lincoln Project, you know, the anti-Trump group. And Kasich's ally, Matt Borges, the former chairman of the Ohio GOP, has even formed a pro-Biden super PAC. Uh, but and and as we've said, there, there's a pretty significant effort by anti-Trump Republicans to try to make sure he doesn't get reelected. And they are investing in Ohio. They want to, you know, now that we see that Ohio could be competitive, it, it was once thought to be in the bag for Trump. But so all of those factors, I think, probably played into that invitation. But as you said, that a lot of Democrats are not at all uh, happy about this. There was some serious backlash, uh, especially on social media. You know, the, these Democrats are pointing to Kasich's tenure as governor, during which he he tried to gut collective bargaining and he signed numerous abortion restrictions into law. And they see him as someone who's totally at odds with with what the Democratic Party represents and their ideals. Well, it depends on which version of John Kasich they're talking about. There was the John Kasich when he first came into office, who was the mm -hmm. staunch conservative, but the guy who left office was trying to be the great healer and Medicaid. But the thing that throws me, I mean, there was a lot of pushback and, uh, you know, people were kind of all over social media saying, you know, I'm glad he supports this because he wants Trump out. But I would think because they're so driven to get Trump out of office. I mean, they really do believe that if he gets another four years, the nation won't survive. Um, I mean, the way he's handled the coronavirus, it's been a disaster. I would think that the idea that the enemy of my enemy is my friend would play here. <laughs> and they'd say, come on in, John Kasich. The, you know, and, we're open and to anybody. Some Democrats were making that very point yesterday, saying that, you know, it's time to unite against Trump, that our our republic is at stake here. There shouldn't be this purity test. And, and Democrats need Republicans on their side to defeat Trump. So that's that's the other side of the argument. And the, and the other thing is, if, if John Kasich is willing to come into that kind of a hall to talk about the need to defeat Trump, does that offer some hope for bipartisan cooperation if the Democrats were to win. I mean, you know, we've been we've been in a miserable period in America for God, like 30 years now of just horrible polarization. And so if a Republican John Kasich is reaching across the aisle to work to get a Democrat elected, you know, you, know, you would think, hey, <laughs> maybe there's a yeah, thought. You know, uh, some of the Ohio Democrats who have expressed concerns about this, you know, they're thinking like we've we've often been kind of bemused by Kasich's recent status as this national media star, you know, the moderate 
compassionate, conservative, the, the adult in the room. And, you know, the guy who called for gun reforms near the end of his term. But, you know, we know that that's kind of not really who he was as governor. And, I know, but yeah. you're, you want to win, right? And if you automatically get divided on something like this, it goes right back to Chris Ranowski's line. God, it goes three years ago now. The Dems are going to blow it. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is a chance to welcome a Republican in that brings some supporters to fight against their common foe. And I, I just am surprised by all of the immediate animosity. But well, it, now it, I want to know what Chris Wernowski thinks. Well, and, <laughs> and I, think, I think one of the concerns, because the response I saw on Twitter, and maybe it's a reflection of who I follow, but it was almost resoundingly like, why is this guy speaking at our convention? And, and, and I think that there, there is a sense at least in this race, especially given that Biden was the candidate that that he was viewed as, you know, not progressive enough, uh, not hard enough on things like the Green New Deal and all of these very progressive sort of platforms that are winning in small races around the country. I think there is a sense that that wing of the Democratic Party is sort of being ignored in favor of 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 trying to go after these cast off Republicans. I mean, keep in mind the George Conway's and the Rick Wilson's of the Lincoln project are, you know, a little bit culpable in establishing the foundation in which the Trump administration was sort of built on, you know? And, and so it's like, you know, okay, we'll let you in and we'll, we'll let you be on, 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 on our team for this one, because I, we believe the president is this president is a, an existential threat to democracy period. Um, but you know, this doesn't let you off the hook for, you know, doing things like supporting the Iraq war and, and all of the Bush Cheney chicanery that occurred. Uh, so, so I think there's some concern about that. I think there's some concern that, that, you know, people on the progressive wing of the party want to pull the party further to the left. And this brings them not even more to the middle, but over to the right. And, yeah, and so I, get I think it. that's kind of the analysis of that. I get it. It's just the, the immediate challenge for them is getting Trump out of office. And, and so you can, you can have all those battles later about what defines the party but if you don't remove Trump, the party remains well, weak, and, and here's a chance to to use Republicans to to make that difference. And, and and to play devil's advocate to my own argument, you know, if if Biden is elected, you know, he he will have to work with some of those Republicans. Now, right. you know, I mean, there are some that are completely, you know, sort of to the right and, and are, are full in into the evangelical sort of Trump world. Right. He's not going to work with Graham. Right. Work, work I, with. But, yeah. And yeah. And frankly, you know, I mean, those people should probably be sent to Elba <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and isolate, but you know, governance is, is founded on the idea of compromise. Compromise. Now, you know, right. now whether that, you know, I mean that it right now talking in those terms seems so naive that to think that, we can actually get there. But I think the, the, the Biden diehards, the, the people who sort of define their notions of, of government on the West wing, you know, I think those people think there's some sort of soft center that we can get back to that, 
you know, where everybody will hold hands and, and do good and pass legislation, which we just don't do anymore. But you won't get there if you're right off the bat, you're rejecting a Republican of John Kasich's stature reaching his hand out to provide aid. And that's that's why I was surprised by the way this developed yesterday. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How much will Cuyahoga County taxpayers have to pay to settle the case of a jail inmate who was beaten up after cooperating with the jail investigation? Chris Ranowski, this inmate was beaten up while he was praying. What? Uh, how is this story developing now? So the county is expected to pay $140,000 to settle a lawsuit against the corrections officer who attacked this inmate. Um, this this attack happened um, while the jail was under investigation. If, if people don't remember this, I just a quick refresher that between 2018 and 2019, nine people died in the jail. As a result of that, the U.S. Marshal Service came in and did an investigation into the jail and basically found that state inspectors weren't really doing much inspecting and that there were a lot of problems in the jail. One of the more significant problems was this group of corrections officers that they were they were called referred to by inmates as the men in black. They were this special tactical response team that were also referred to as the goon squad by by uh, some of the people that were interviewed. This inmate was harassed by those corrections officers um, because he he did an interview with this with the marshal service about some of the things that were going on in the jail. And as a result of this, he claimed in his lawsuit that he was harassed for trying to while he was trying to pray and that the jail was not giving him proper meals because of his Muslim faith. And as a result, um, this, the inmate basically, I mean, he didn't prevail in the lawsuit, but the the county decided to settle it um, as a result. So $140,000, another, another piece of the tax money that we're giving up because of all the bad problems at the jail. In the end, uh, I I can't imagine that the total bill won't be under ten million with all the uh, death and the people that have sued. Um, we'll just have to keep adding that that up. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Are Ohioans about to lose protections they have had during the coronavirus pandemic against the shutoff of their water, gas, and electricity? That was one of the the nice things that happened in the beginning of this thing, Jane Cahoon. Is there was a moratorium on shutting people off. Actually, they were with water. I believe they were told to turn it back on if it was turned off any time since the beginning of the year. But we're deep into the pandemic and people who aren't paying their bills still have their utilities. Are we getting to the point where they're going to start to lose them? Well, we're not there yet, but but soon we will be. The, uh, the Ohio EPA's order to that municipal water systems, as you said, restore service and and not shut off that expired on July 10th and the the other utilities the gas and electric they're they're starting to roll out plans to once again stop service for delinquent customers now they they say that they they are going to attempt to make arrangements with customers to get caught up on their bills be, before they move to disconnect and and uh Companies like the Illuminating Company and Ohio Edison say they're they're not going to restart shutoffs until at least 
September 15th. So, but, but still the critics like the Ohio Consumers Council says, you know, we have still have persistent high unemployment and poverty. And, and if people lose these services, it's, it's just going to make their plight even, even more desperate. It'll be interesting to see if the if the surge were to to grow and things were to get bad, whether they would continue it. In the in the vein of this conversation, I do want to call out something Cuyahoga County is doing. You know, we talk a lot on this podcast about the goofy things that the Cuyahoga County government does. But I was I was heartened to see when I got my tax bill last weekend a letter from Armin Budish laying out that they're trying to add a bunch of ways to help people with their taxes if they're having hardships because of the coronavirus. They've always had payment plans and things, but it was a it seemed like a pretty heartfelt letter to say, hey, look, we want to help you. We're here to help you. Call us. We'll help you work through this. We can come up with ways to fix it. If you're behind on a payment plan, we'll do a new one. So um, after I got the letter, we asked Courtney to Courtney Astolfi, the county reporter, to write a story about it. It's on the front page of the Plain Dealer today. It's a it's a nice thing the county is doing while all the utilities are about to start sticking it to people. <laughs> so thought we should uh, we should bring that up. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What do we know about the Cleveland police officer who was shot while on duty early Monday? Chris Ranowski, the details on this were pretty sketchy. Uh, have we learned much more overnight? Um, we got a little bit more than we had yesterday. The shooting happened about four in the morning at a boarding house on East 81st Street between Euclid and Carnegie in the Fairfax neighborhood. And the uh, head of the police union said that the officer was a 26-year-old woman who was hospitalized and is doing okay. Uh, and Chief Calvin Williams uh, said later in the morning that she was taken to University Hospital and is is doing better and, and, and has stabilized. Uh, and, but he did say she had a quote long way to go. Um, the shooting happened. Um, a woman called nine one one after a, a man threatened her with a gun and fired a gunshot through the floor. The 26 year old officer and her 24 year old partner went in the home and found the man in the second floor bathroom. Um, the officers opened the bathroom door and the man fired several shots at them, according to police. Uh, and the the man who was on the other side of the shooting was not hurt in, in the incident and neither was the uh, the 24-year-old officer. But then this it turned into a SWAT situation and they eventually took the man into custody um, and he was taken to Metro Health. Uh, and my guess is he's probably in jail by now. Okay. Jane Cahoon, I'm going to throw you a uh, a dodge here. Do you know why the farm of Larry Householder is being raided at the moment by the federal <laughs> investigators? <laughs> Just got yeah. a note from Seth Richardson saying, hey, the, uh, the FBI has raided Larry Householder's farm, the Speaker of the House. Yeah, I'm actually reading this right now, too. It says that police activity is being reported at his farm in Perry County, and the U.S. Attorney's Office has said it's holding a 2.30 p.m. press conference today, uh, Tuesday, related to $60 million in bribes paid to a state official and associates. That is according to the Dayton Daily News. Well, 
<laughs> we should be having uh, an interesting discussion on tomorrow's podcast, right? <laughs> well, and and we, I, I don't know. We don't. We know nothing more than what Chris just said. But let's remember that the, there was an investigation of state house officials that never culminated in anything last year, right, Jane? So, so this could all well, be related. I, you know, I thought that was still ongoing. Are you are you speaking of Cliff Rosenberger, the former the house former speaker? house speaker? Right. Um, we hadn't heard anything about the conclusion to that investigation. I I don't believe, but um, there was a previous investigation when Larry Householder had his first stint as speaker that that wrapped up without any any kind of charges or anything. So. Uh, very, very intriguing. We'll have to see what this what this brings. Okay. Right. This is also being handled out of the Southern Division. Uh, so it, it's the FBI in Cincinnati is handling this. So this is, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely be paying attention to the press conference. Well, and Mike DeWine has a briefing today, so I imagine he'll be asked about it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. As school districts plan to reopen this fall, is anyone thinking about the mental health of the students, the stigma they might feel if they get the virus or have a health condition in which they cannot wear masks? Jane Cahoon, Emily Bamforth did an interesting story that got much more into the into the heads of the students. And the takeaway was, for me, that there's not a whole lot of planning being done for this. And th- this is and this pandemic is going to create some very difficult situations for schools when it comes to that. Right. You know, as if the schools don't have enough to worry about right now with, you know, whether they should open, whether they should be teaching remotely or in person and all the safety concerns. They have to worry about, you know, like what if a kid tests positive? How do they handle that? How do they handle the kids' privacy? How do they prevent kids from being stigmatized over this virus or bullied. And so there is some discussion going on about that. But, you know, just as the reopening plans in general, it's kind of up to each district to to come up with, with a plan. Of course, you know, whenever you get a positive case, it, all of them are going to have to notify the local health department. And there's a certain protocol that's going to have to be followed and there will have to be, you know, notification of not just the health department, but they, they're going to have to find a way to notify the community as well without, without compromising privacy. So they, they, they do have some difficult decisions ahead. And actually, Jane, this story opened my eyes to what I think is going to happen this fall. You, we all know lots of teachers married to one who who really are worried about going back to school. They they don't think any of the planning has been for their safety. That they think there's a this is a big mistake. And a lot of parents feel the same way. In in Emily's story it says if somebody is exposed to somebody else that has the virus, they all have to quarantine for 14 days. So I guarantee <laughs> you the first time a kid gets di- gets the test comes back positive Every teacher in that school is going to go, oh, I was with him. Yeah, yep. <laughs> it's all going to go remote. You know? Right, and there's not going to be any substitute <laughs> teachers, and so the schools are going to have to shut down. I mean, th- this story kind of opened the window to to the impossibility of keeping schools open. If one kid gets it, 
Mm-hmm. Everybody that comes into contact has to quarantine for 14 days. <laughs> Think about that. It's just going to be a nightmare of of trying to staff the schools. There's not a, a bunch of substitutes. And frankly, I don't know that substitutes don't want to go into a school where a whole bunch of people have been quarantined because of the coronavirus. So uh, it's interesting. The idea, too, that that they have to protect the kids' privacy. So so some kid gets the the, the virus. And then they have to figure out a way to find out how many kids that kid was exposed to without giving up his name. I mean, what you, you know, right now, if there's some kind of a health thing, they send a note out to all the parents saying, hey, we have X in the school. You should be aware of it. But with this, it's very specific. You've got to quarantine the people with the direct exposure to that kid. I don't know how you protect the privacy of that kid. Everybody's going to you'll have to. To, to find out who he was exposed to, you'll have to go talk to the kids and say, hey, were you playing with Johnny Smith? And that identifies him as a coronavirus kid. So Emily's story is a fascinating look at what's ahead in a way that I had not seen explored. And I'm more convinced than ever <laughs> that this isn't going to work. But we'll see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right. Well, that Larry Householder thing threw us a curve. That's the first time we've actually announced breaking news in the podcast. Now we got to publish this thing so people can hear yeah, it. Yeah, I got to get to work, guys. <laughs> so, yeah, we're going to have a busy news Chris, day. Chris, you got to help me. Yeah, we'll Thanks. figure it out. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, everybody, for listening to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back with another episode tomorrow in which we'll be talking about that Householder raid. Mm-hmm.